everyone should feel the opportunity to make a mistake. It could be that you take this cool job and you do not like it. Well, guess what, my friend? You can get another job. And you may go to law school and hate it or get your MBA and not want to. And, you know, we have all of these opportunities that are available to us as women. And so I think we should have the opportunity to kind of like splash around and be messy and kind of just get to figure out what it is we want to do. Fierce Lab is a podcast series for women. It's powered by the Tara Wilson Agency, the agency that gets women. It's a space to focus on our whole selves, from mental health to career development to financial intelligence. To be fierce is to be confident, capable, and strong. Fierce Lab offers inspiration, tools, and community. It's where we can explore new ideas and encourage discovery. Here, trying something new is celebrated. No one has it all figured out, but together, we can step fiercely into what's next. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fierce Lab. I am your host, and today I am joined by Rachel Mallison. Rachel was a speaker at Fierce Lab Live, and she sat in on one of our risk-taking panels. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to level set for everybody, and I would love it if you would share. You're with the Aspen Institute. I'd love if you would share what you're doing there, but I think it's also going to be important to give some context of where you worked prior to going to the Institute. So would you fill everyone in? Absolutely. So I am the Senior Manager for Risks and Operations at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is a really amazing nonprofit that brings together people who normally wouldn't be in the same room to talk about the most pressing issues facing our world and making sure that we have a more free, equitable, and just society. I do organizational risk for them, which is sort of legal adjacent. I'm not a lawyer, but thinking about If we're making new moves, is that going to help our reputation? Is there risk to that? Do I need to evaluate? Do I need to get a certain kind of insurance? What do I need to do? So thinking through all of the ways that we need to protect ourselves as we move forward in the world, a lot of that also has to do with safety and security. And so in my last role, I did emergency management and disaster response for the Senate Sergeant at Arms with the United States Senate. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so a bit of background there. Thank you, by the way, for sharing about the role that and the work that the Aspen Institute does. I think some of our listeners are familiar and others aren't. So that was great to hear. So we got acquainted because we have a mutual friend and I saw a post that you did on LinkedIn as you were leaving your last position and moving over to the Aspen Institute. And this post was all about the fact that you were in the Capitol on January 6th. And so I want to kind of talk a little bit about that. And we're really going to focus in, Rachel, in our conversation of of how you evaluate risk. There are a few of our guests that have been on the podcast, I'd probably venture to say none, and probably very few of our listeners that have ever really found themselves face-to-face with a true life and death situation. And so we're going to talk about what your experience was like on January 6th and how that has shaped the way you think about taking risks in your life, taking risks in your career, and more importantly, what women can take away from your experiences. So take me back to that day on January 6th for you, how it started, what it looked like, what you knew, and what you experienced. Can we talk there? Yeah. So, I mean, it was basically two years ago now, which is wild. It feels like it was yesterday and also feels like it was a million years ago. I got up in the morning and went to work. I lived much closer to the Capitol than I do now. I still live really close to the Capitol, like a mile and a half away. But at the time, I was just a few blocks away. And so I walked to work and I kind of immediately knew that something was different. I was seeing a lot of protesters back near my apartment all the way to the Capitol. And that was really unusual. I wasn't used to seeing people who were engaging in protests or 
any sort of discourse, they're normally not that far back into the neighborhoods. And so I thought, oh man, it must be a lot of people if I'm getting folks nine blocks away. Like that's kind of crazy. And so I decided to take a different route into work that day. Normally, I would just walk down East Capitol Street straight into the Capitol. That was my preferred walk. It's by far the most beautiful walk, I think, in the world, but definitely in D.C. And I decided to go into one of the office buildings, the Senate office buildings, and go in through the tunnels to get into the Capitol because I thought, I don't want to deal with all these people. And by 8.30 in the morning, there were probably already 2,000 people milling around the area. It could be more or less, I'm really bad at those games where you have to like guess how many peanuts are in a jar or whatever, but it was a lot of people. And there was an angry energy there and a really threatening one. And I thought, ooh, this feels different. And like there are protests every day of the week and twice on Sundays in DC for every manner of things. I mean, one weekend we had a protest for Trump, a protest against the protest for Trump, and then we had a protest of Juggalos, which are a band fan base for a punk rap group. And it was like all of it convening in one weekend. I was like, my God. And even that seemed <laughs> remarkably calm in compared to the energy that we were feeling. And so Mind you, it's COVID, so we are still kind of working. Some people are remote some days, and some people are in those days, and so I was in. And I was, that morning, we were focusing on the fact that we only had 98 senators there that day because the Georgia runoffs, poor Georgia, has been through a 1,000 elections in four years. And they had had the runoffs the night before where we knew that Senator Raphael Warnock had won, but we were waiting to find out that Senator John Ossoff had won. And so we were thinking about, oh, you know, who's going to be the new kid on the block? Like, is it going to be Kelly Leffler again? Is it going to be John Ossoff? Who, like, which staff are we going to need to work with? That kind of thing. And then by 1130, I was like, this is going to be the worst day of my life. I was watching C-SPAN. I had a Capitol Police radio as part of my job is that I had a radio. And so I was listening to all of these conversations before this is even before, you know, President Trump said, we're going to go up to the Capitol. We're going to tell them what's what. And I mean, even before that, it was chaos. And I thought, my God, what is going to happen? And I just knew like deep down, this is going to be a terrible day. And there's no getting out of that. Like there's no avoiding it. This is a reality that's coming at me like a freight train. And it's going to hit me. And the only way out is through. And so I remember talking to a coworker and saying, they're going to breach the Capitol. Like, all of our plans that we've ever made are contingent on people not breaching the Capitol. Let's pause there, Rachel, and let's make sure our listeners understand what your role was, what you were doing, why you were in the Capitol. What does that mean when you're on, on the risk management side? Because I found myself asking those questions prior to really knowing you. Absolutely. Oh, gosh, I assume everyone is in my head, but that's so true. So my role was an emergency manager. It is law enforcement adjacent. Again, not a cop, not a lawyer and not a cop. But when you think emergency managers, you're normally thinking firefighters, EMTs, police, and all of that is true. But then you also have civilian emergency managers that help plan for when things go wrong and then react when things go wrong. So I don't know if people who are listening to the podcast have ever seen the episode of Parks and Recreation where they have an emergency exercise and they all have to get their little binders together and pretend that something goes wrong in Pawnee, but that's a lot of what it's like. If you've ever been a part of a fire drill, you have been a part of an emergency plan. So if you're in your office and someone says, hey, so-and-so is the fire warden, in the event of an emergency, they're going to tell you how to get out. I wrote those kinds of plans, not really for fire, but more for 
if there is a bomb or an active shooter, or if someone decides to bring rice into the Capitol, right? Because that happened in the early 2000s. We had the anthrax scare that shut down part of the Senate for three months. And so, yeah, because they were, they were, we were shut down. That whole building was shut down for a hundred days. So emergency managers were, are kind of a new-ish job. The whole industry came about after 9-11. Some of it, like there was an existing framework before then, but it really became a booming industry and area of expertise after 9-11. And so FEMA, if you think that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management. And then, so we were like FEMA, but for 100 people, so 100 senators and all of their staff. So that's what I did. Yeah. Okay. Before I fast forward us back to January 6th, I want to back us up even further. So you talk about that emergency management from a civilian side is is a pretty new industry. And let's go back. You graduated from Texas A&M and you didn't study emergency management. You didn't necessarily know you were going to go into this field. And this is what fascinates me about you, Rachel, is that you've kind of taken these calculated risks all along in your career that brought you to the day of being there on January 6th. So let's let's step back and let's look at you graduated from A&M and you were trying to step into that first career. What did that look like for you? Yeah. So I got my bachelor's degree in political science and my master's degree in nonprofit management. I graduated in 2015. So this is only a few years after the job market for young grads kind of takes a huge nosedive. So it's hard to get a job. And it's really hard to get a job in DC, especially that first job, if you want to make any money at all. And when I say any money, I mean like you're still living on peanut butter sandwiches. You're splitting a basement with a friend. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about right. like sense, right? Survival. <laughs> Survival. And so I had interned in DC with the Department of Commerce doing international trade administration stuff. And I thought that was so cool. And I just wanted to be back in DC doing international development was really my passion. I found a paid internship at a firm that did a little bit of international development, but they actually hired me to do proposals, marketing, and a little bit of help with the their contracts for the United States Army and the United States Marines, which are not quite the same as international nope. development in any form of fashion. <laughs> but I was broke. And I said, okay, sure. I can make this work. I can figure it out. And it, it, it just needs to be for a little while. You know, I was, it was so hard coming out of grad school and seeing friends get what I thought were these amazing jobs that I just could not get. And so I have always believed that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so you might as well take that first step because who knows where it gets you. And I learned a lot, but also that job was not for me. I hated it so much, but I was there for two years and I learned a bunch and it, I kept applying to try to get a second job and it was so hard. It was almost harder to get that second job than it was the first one because I kept looking around and saying, I have a little bit of experience, like, please take my two years of experience. And, you know, everyone wants three to five, or they want to hire you in as an intern. And I just didn't want to take a backward step when I felt like I was finally getting momentum. And so I reached out to a friend of mine from grad school, who is a wonderful gentleman named Brian. He was He's a few years older than me, probably 10 years older than me. And he was an associate at a consulting firm. And I said, Hey, can I just like talk to you about jobs? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. And I am, I feel like an idiot. He was like, you're not an idiot, but yes, we can talk. And so we talked and he said, Hey, look, we're always looking for analysts at my firm. I can put in a good word for you. And we do emergency management consulting. Are you interested in that? And I said, I don't know what any of those three words mean. 
I don't, <laughs> first of all, I don't really know what consulting is. It seems like this nebulous thing. And let me say, I've been a consultant now. It is a nebulous thing. I still don't think I could explain it. But I asked him about, about emergency management and he had experience in it. I mean, he was in urban search and rescue. He responded to Katrina. He's responded to all this stuff. Like he knew this. And I was a moron. Like my extent of knowledge of emergency management is like, I think I've seen half of Twister on a plane. Like, <laughs> I don't know, but I can write and I can learn and I can make PowerPoints and I can, I'm a good study. And so he put in a good word for me and I got the job. And then it was the most weird interesting, strange thing I've ever done. I got to travel across the country talking to different jurisdictions on what they would do if plane exploded in the sky as it was about to land at their airport. I got to travel to Dallas to do that, which was really cool to be in my hometown, Fort Worth, and being thinking about like, oh, if this happened, I feel really good about how the Dallas-Fort Worth area would respond to this. Or we're in Missoula, Montana, where they have not a lot of resources, but they have a whole lot of heart and they're going to figure out how to handle this. And so I got to travel the country and really admire the people that are making this stuff happen and doing their best. And they're just normal people, right? And, but then I got, I got moved to a, something called the Campus Resiliency Project that was mostly focused on universities, which was really interesting to think about how we handle emergencies at universities. And then that shifted after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School to really focus on K through 12 shooting. And that was just such a drag. It was so sad. It was difficult because we were consultants. So we can't say, hey, Department of Homeland Security, this is how you should respond to this. It had to be hey, these are our ideas and you have to work with the administration that you're in, which at that time was the Trump administration. And so it was just real, there were some really confined parameters of what we could and could not address in our recommendations. And I thought, this is a drag. I need to go somewhere else. Let's see what's out there. And so I saw this job for the sergeant at arms and they wanted someone with like 10 years of experience, but I had like three Exactly. And this is what I want to get to. Even in this previous career, you were talking about getting that second job seems to be harder than getting the first job. Because the first job, it seems like people are willing to kind of give you a chance. They recognize you don't know anything. But it's that next job where there's this expectation of what you can and can't bring to the table. They they know you are making a little bit of money, usually, and we're usually looking to take a step up in pay for that second and what I'm hearing from you is that you go for it in spite of not knowing what what you're doing, not having the experience, you are are still willing to go for it. So you you've got like three years experience that this position comes up and you say, okay, I'm gonna what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. I saw it and I thought, I'm going to apply for this. Sure, they want 10 years of experience, but they also, so I don't have that, obviously, but they want these two certifications that I do have. And they want someone who can do this. I can pretty much do that. And then I can do everything else. Like, I know how to write. I know how to do this. I know how to explain. I know how to train. So like, I adjacently know how to do most of this. I have found that most women will not apply to a job unless they have all of the experience. I've also found that most women don't talk about their salaries and they won't try to negotiate for more. I made a commitment to myself when I was in grad school and learned this fact because it was in some study that we talked about at a career development seminar. I'm going to apply for jobs even if I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I'll, I'll know what I'm talking about a little bit, but even if I don't have the exact expertise... I'm going to apply. The worst thing that happens is that I don't get a call back. The second worst thing that happens is that I interview and don't get it. The best thing that happens is that I interview and get it. And like, I'm, that's not a, it's not like I'm going to die. Like this is just, at this point, it's just fun. Like, let's just have a little fun with it. And so I applied to the Sergeant at Arms job and I thought there is no way on God's green earth that I am going to get an interview. And then I did. 
and it was a phone interview. And I remember being in a studio apartment that I shared with a roommate because it's DC. And I'm in my bed and they asked me to explain the Senate. That's the first question. Explain the United States Senate. And I went straight to AP U.S. history and was like, the Senate is a part of our bicameral car. And I just was like, <laughs> Wikipedia explaining. And then I have enough friends that work on the Hill that I was gleaning stuff from stories that they'd told me and, you know, had a phone interview. And I thought, I blew it. I sounded like a moron. They probably thought I was reading straight from Wikipedia. Little <laughs> did I know, a lot of people that they interviewed didn't know a lot about the Senate. So my knowledge was great. And then I went in for an interview. And I mean, I was like, gosh, at the time, like 25, this little blonde thing, just trying her best and went in and just felt it was like a murder board. I mean, there was like, four of what later became my coworkers. And now I know that they're like fluffy teddy bears. But at the time, it was really intimidating. And I thought, I'm just going to go in here and try. And if I don't get it, that's fine, because I never thought I was going to get it anyways. And my boss was a woman. And she was the one of the first women to work for this in the emergency management section of the sergeant at arms. And she really values hiring women. She's a great advocate for her employees, a great advocate for women in the workplace. And I went in and I did my best and I thought she was really nice. And she thought I was really nice. And it turns out after my interview, I think you'll love this story. One of my wonderful coworkers who later came to love me, but initially was not very impressed with me. And he was, he's a man. And he said, I mean, I guess if you want someone to braid your hair at a slumber party, she'd be a good choice. But I don't know if she has what it takes. And my boss said, well, if I have to get stuck in an elevator with someone for an hour, I choose her. Wow. So, <laughs> so wow. I ended up beating out people who had more experience because I knew what I was talking about, but also I seemed like a nice coworker and someone who would make you laugh on a bad day. Rachel, you're right. I like this story, and I'm not sure I can let that story go without trying to unpack that. You know, yeah, I get it. He's so a nice cool. man. You've come to know him, and, and he's a great guy. But what do you think that's about? I mean, it's the biggest cliche in the book that we sit around and braid each other's hair. I mean, what do men not learn? I mean, well, there's lots that men what, don't learn. What men don't learn could really fill a book. Um, that's true. <laughs> but I think it's just the expectation that this is a hard job and it's for hard people. And the fact is, it's a job about problem solving and staying calm. And in my limited experience on this earth, I think women do a pretty good job of solving problems and staying calm. So I actually think emergency management is a great career for women because we're always thinking a few steps ahead in every direction to try to anticipate stuff. So he was wrong. And I made fun of him for it. One time I brought it up and he was like, they told you that? And I said, yes, my friend, yeah. they did. <laughs> they like, told me and I've known it and I still like you in spite of those cocky comments, right? And he goes, don't listen to the shit that comes out of my mouth. And I was like, <laughs> I, half the time I don't, but I love you very much. But casual sexism in the workplace is literally nothing new. And he didn't mean it maliciously at the time. I think he had someone in mind that he wanted to get hired instead. And you just kind of have to deal with that stuff and work through it with that person individually. And by the end of my time there, I mean, my, the other thing is my work speaks for itself. I don't really care if you think I'm a girly girl who braids my hair. It's a comical notion, but it's just one of those silly things that you kind of have to laugh at one of those things I think that if you'd told me in college, I would have been like, that's unacceptable. We've got to fight the power. And now I'm like, you just got to work within it to keep doing your job. Sometimes it is just, you can't take it seriously. Well, and when we were prepping for this call and prepping for you to speak at Fierce Lab Live, that was one of the, the points that you brought up is that you learn to work within the parameters that you're in. And so much of being on Capitol Hill is about power and knowledge and information. And you talked about socializing ideas. I'd, lo I'd love to hear a little thought around that of what you learned during that time from, I'm going to use this term, playing politics, right? 
Because sometimes I don't think women do it well. No, and I don't think anyone's taught them how. And so I really didn't learn until I had my boss at the Senate. Her name is Sue Ellen, and she is the queen of socializing ideas. She has an idea. Sue Ellen, wait, hold on, let's pause. Sue Ellen is her name? Yes, Sue Ellen Dooley. And and so you you grew up in Texas. Did you grow up watching the TV show Dallas and the Yes, I did. The <laughs> JR's wife was Sue Ellen. Okay, yeah. I love it. And I digress. Absolutely. I digress. No, that's absolutely correct. But she is she has great ideas and she's an innovator. And so she will noodle on an idea and come up with it and think through all the reasons why it wouldn't work. And then she'll refine it and realize that this is definitely the best idea. And I would say that 10 out of 10 times, she's right. And then she will think of who needs to get on board with this idea at a mid-level. And then who can go with her from the mid-level to pitch it to the high level. And then she's so all the while that she's doing this, she's also socializing it at a lower level. Hey, what are your thoughts on, you know, I have the craziest idea what if we did X, Y, Z? What are your thoughts on that? Because I know that you have experience doing something sort of similar when you were in the Marines. Why don't you tell me about it? It's masterful. And so I learned from her and would do it too. So I would pick the person who I thought would be at the middle level who would definitely say no. And I would work on them first and, you know, sit in their office, say, Hey, you know, you said something X, Y, Z. Here's my thoughts. What are your thoughts? I would slowly get them on board. I'd wear them down. I'd stop in on a Friday afternoon. Hey, have you thought about that thing I mentioned? And then once I got them on board, I'd say, you know what? Would you mention that at the next staff meeting with the senior staff? Or like, hey, do you think that maybe you might slip that into conversation with the chief of staff or the board? And so that, I, I didn't have nearly the success rate that Sue Ellen had, but I did have some real wins and learning how to do that was really invaluable. Appreciate you sharing that because you're right. As we, as we said, women aren't taught this skill set and it's one of the soft skills that doesn't get spoken about often. It's often hard to contextualize how someone does it. And so for you to kind of share what it looks like to socialize an idea up and socialize an idea down and the language that is utilized and the way in which it's approached. It seems like there's probably a lot of patience in that process too. Yes. From it, yeah, absolutely some patience required and also just some determination that I've thought about all the different ways that we could do this and barring some sort of outside notion that I haven't thought of. I think that this is the right way and I trust myself to think that this is the correct answer and I'm going to put myself behind this and really try to get it out there. Mm. I love that. I trust that this is the right answer. You've also said, I think I should be here and therefore I should be here. Yes, absolutely. I think that a lot of times we will get a job or get into a position and we think, oh no, what if this is wrong? Or like, what if I'm not qualified? Well, you were hired. So on some level, you're qualified enough to get the job. And you're probably not going to get fired anytime soon because that's an incredibly costly process. So you might as well hang out while you're there and try to do your best and try to think about how you can make things better. Like the worst thing that happens is you get fired and odds are that won't happen because again, it's really hard to hire people. So they hired you for a reason. So what I love about this, Rachel, like as you're talking, I'm hearing the way you evaluate risks. You're like, you look at it through the lens of what's the worst that could happen? And I think that's a really great takeaway for women that listen to our podcast is to understand that when you frame up something that feels scary, unknown, risky, whatever word you want to use to describe it through the lens of what's the worst that could happen? I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. Let me evaluate how it's going to go down and what's my counteraction to that particular possibility. I think you bring so much clarity to the concept of taking a risk. And I'm 
fascinated by how you're articulating it. Oh, I so appreciate that. That's my approach to everything. When I was salary negotiating for my job with the Senate Surgeon at Arms, I will talk about salary here because first of all, it's public record anyways, any government salaries, public record. So feel free to look it up on GovStorm. But at the consulting firm, I was making like $56,000, which is nothing to sneeze at. That's a great salary. But I wanted more. DC is incredibly expensive. I was going to be living alone. My roommate was moving back to Texas. And so I just decided to say, I want $89,000. And my boss boss, a great man named Dave, was like, I don't know if we could do 89. Well, the thing is, I didn't want 89 anyways. I wanted 82. <laughs> I had just okay. decided, I had seen a study that said in order to be really financially happy in DC, you have to make $75,000. I thought, well, let's make a little more. I want 82. And so I said, okay, I'll do 82. Final answer. And he said, I don't know if we can do that. I said, well, talk amongst yourselves and let me know. Because... <laughs> <laughs> At this point, they're a month into negotiations. They're a month into interviews, right? They've probably narrowed it down to three of us. I'm the one that they want. I know what the salary band is for this position. They just have to justify paying me what I've asked for. Now, that may be hard, and they can come back to me and say, we're only going to give you 75 or 77. But I was just like, well, I've given you a number, and whether or not you can do that is literally not my problem. So like, let me know. And I didn't hear from him for two weeks. And so I was like, wow, I like really biffed that one. Like, oops, well, live and learn. And then I just got my, I got my offer letter from them and it had $82,000 in it. I thought, well, hot dog, I guess you can negotiate salaries by just not seeming that interested in the outcome. And then every year I would get a raise. I would try to negotiate the percentage of that raise. I really wanted to get to a hundred thousand dollars, which I did. And then, you know, how just being amenable to, you know, if you give me a raise, that's awesome. If there's room for negotiation, I'll try. If you're telling me that there's no room for negotiation, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. I'm going to say, that's fine. I'll take what you give me. I love money. So give me more of it. And I also was very like, I would tell my coworkers who were at my same level what I made because I'd say, well, they're paying me this. So you could probably go in and negotiate for that. Because I just think that that's important. Well, and to your point, women are less apt to negotiate. They're less apt to talk about what they make. And as you were sharing, like you knew the salary band, you had done your research on what it would take to be happy living happily in D.C. from a salary perspective. So you knew what you would be satisfied with. You went in with a high number. As you're sharing that, I'm reminded of Claire Wasserman, who's the founder of Ladies Get Paid. She's a past podcast guest, and she talks about this skill, this very skill of how you can get to a place to negotiate where it doesn't feel like it's this big, scary thing that you have to do, but it's all about knowing your number. So I'll repeat that for anybody listening. Claire Wasserman, Ladies Get Paid. We have a podcast with her. Take a listen because she really teaches you how to do what Rachel has done for herself. And Claire also has a book by the same name, Ladies Get Paid, if you prefer to read versus listen to our podcast. And okay, Rachel, I wrote this down. I wrote it down. I love money, so give me more of it. I've probably never heard a better money mantra, but that one is good. That one's really good. And, and obviously, like, I'm working in government, right? I'm not doing it for the money, right? I'm not at Google or something. We're talking about <laughs> that it took me years to get to the $100,000 mark, and that was a huge victory for me personally. I'm single. I live alone in the city. That was huge. And so anytime I get a raise, I'm so excited because it means I can put more money towards the future. And I, anytime I get a raise, I do buy myself something nice to reward myself for getting that raise. But obviously I'm not money motivated if I'm working for governments and nonprofits. Like, let's be honest here, but I do deserve (laughs) to be compensated for what I bring to the table. And I know that every man who goes in there for a job is advocating for himself He's asking for more and he's expecting more. So why would I not do the same thing? 
I am a better hire than most men out there. So I deserve to get the exact same things that they would get. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I think every woman should do that. I also think women should be a little clear with their salaries and explain to friends what they're making if they're in the same field. My friends and I do that. I know most of my friends' salaries are financial status because we talk about it. And it is helpful to say, oh, you're working at so-and-so? Like, well, my friend just started there and she started at 125. So if you're not getting 125, you shouldn't even get out of bed. You should call them back and ask for more. Like, it's helpful to talk about it, but also that wasn't something I was necessarily comfortable doing when I was 23. Mm -hmm. And you've made yourself more comfortable doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, yes, it takes practice. And it takes women like you coming on a podcast like this and being willing to talk openly about how you've done it and what you're continuing to do and the money that you're making and the way you frame it in your mind. So I appreciate your candor and your honesty. Thank you so much. I just think it's so important. So I want to take listeners back. It's January 6th. You've now decided this is going to be a tough day. You said, I acknowledge to myself that the only way I'm going to get through this is to go through it. And so take us to that moment that you've recognized they're going to breach the Capitol. It's just how it's going to be. What happens next? So I don't know if you or listeners have seen the movie Argo with Ben Affleck. It won Best Picture a few years ago. Really excellent movie. And the first scene is about the breach of the American embassy in Tehran, Iran. And that scene is almost frame for frame what it felt like that day. There's a You have a real reality check of okay, this is an unavoidable thing that's happening in my life right now. I can't escape it. It is is what it is. And also I have a job to do. I have an oath. So I work for the government at the time. And when you work for the government, you have to take an oath of office. And I can't remember every word to it. If I was a better government nerd, I would be able to. But basically you promise to defend the constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. And I took that oath very seriously, both as an American and just personally, I care very much about democracy and our constitution. And that day was essential, right? We're certifying the election, which is like truly a ceremonial thing. It's, it's not real. Like the election has happened. The results are codified. It is what it is. Joe Biden is going to become president, right? But it is essential that we do this ceremonial act in order to move forward. Mind you, we are 14 days away from inauguration. The inauguration stage is already basically set up. Like they're crawling all over it to get into the Capitol. I mean, the footage turns my stomach still. And I was watching it on CNN as it is happening outside the building. Like I'm watching And you're knowing I'm inside. These people are coming for us, those of us that are in this building. Yes. And I think that there were probably, and I sort of knew this at the time, I thought there are two groups of people here. There are people who are coming to do damage and there are people who got swept up in it. A mob is a very scary thing. Human brains kind of shut off in a mob moment. It's really hard to think critically and independently. And so I knew that there were people who meant to do harm. And I knew that there are people who just happened to be there. But the people who just happened to be there were also doing harm. And so it was like everyone is a hostile invader, basically. And, you know, we were not me personally. I was not involved with this because I was not on the chamber floor but we were able to move senators from the chamber to an alternate location within the complex to safety, which, and we, you know, had 98 senators. As I said before, we did not have our two senators from Georgia. So we started the day with 98 and we ended the day with 98. But those hours in between were really scary. Me and some of my coworkers were barricaded into our office in the basement of the Capitol Initially, I had been in an alternate location trying to execute a plan that didn't work because they were in the Capitol Visitor Center. That's a visitor center that's attached to the Capitol. And so they had gotten in 
And I was also in the Capitol Visitor Center. So we were in the same location. And I was like, okay, abort plan. We have to get to safety. This isn't happening. And so me and four coworkers had to run from where we were trying to set up to our offices. And while we were running down this big spiral staircase, this like grand marble staircase, we can hear them above us. And so it's like, we got to go. And so I was mostly just barricaded in the basement of the Capitol for, I don't know, could have been a million hours, but I think it was actually only four. And, you know, we're watching it and it's just like this shock of they're in our house. Like they have come here and we don't know where they are and we don't know where they're going. Like the Capitol is a real maze it has all of these little tunnels. And so we're thinking, how are we ever going to find all of them? Like, how are law enforcement going to get all of these people out? What if they're hiding somewhere? Like, what if they get a senator? And, you know, you see those photos of the guy with the zip ties and people coming for Nancy Pelosi, and they put up a noose in front of the Capitol for Mike Pence. And it's like, these people meant violence. They meant harm. And they did harm. They did harm to people, most importantly, Officer Brian Sicknick. And some of, we lost other officers in the Capitol Police to um, suicide after the fact, which still breaks my heart every day. And they did damage to the building. And like in America, our, we're built around democracy. The Capitol is our cathedral of democracy, right? It's where the people do the people's business. And it was just, I mean, it was disgusting. Like excrement, blood, things were broken. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to burn or rip the portrait of Shirley Chisholm that hangs in the house corridors. Shirley Chisholm is the first black woman to ever run for president. She was known for being unbought and unbossed. And I think she's amazing. She's the one who said, if they don't have a chair at the table for you, pull up a folding chair, like bring your own. And I thought, oh my God, they're going to damage that portrait. And so the next day I went back and the portrait was fine. I don't know why, for whatever reason, I was very concerned about the portrait of Shirley Chisholm. But I mean, they did real damage. They stole phones, they stole laptops, they stole files. I'm sure that in that group of people were foreign agents coming in to try to get what they could from the Capitol. We have no idea the extent to which information was taken. And then you also have all of these people that are fellow Americans that are coming for you, not me personally, but the people I work for, and just thinking, oh my God, like, is this a war? What is this? This is the craziest thing I have ever encountered. And like on every level, as an individual, as an employee, as an American, as a daughter, as a friend, I am fearful of what this means. Like, this is the worst that could happen. I want to know, Rachel, in these moments, I mean, they're so intense and you just described it as you're going through it not only as part of your job, but then you're thinking about it as being an American, but you're also thinking about it, you're someone's daughter. How do you reconcile these moments and and how did you not just crumble? I truly don't think that the idea of crumbling even was an option that was available. It's just, I didn't even consider it. I thought I'll deal with however I'm feeling later once I get out of this, because I really thought I was going to die that day. And so it's just kind of like, well, here we go. My grandmother used to say, just take it a day at a time. If you can't take it an hour at a time, if that's too much, a minute at a time. If you can't do that, just take it one breath at a time. And she used to tell my dad that. And when my mom married into the family, she told my mom that. And my mom first told me that when I lost my gerbil um, (laughs) when I was 10. And Uh it's just something that I've always taken of like, I can just make it this breath. And then I make in the next breath. And then suddenly I have made it an hour. And, you know, you can stand on your head for five minutes. It's kind of the, the attitude is like, I can handle this for five minutes at a time. And I just have to take it five minutes at a time because this is the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. And, you know, your mind's going a million miles an hour. You're thinking about everything under the sun. And also you can't complete a thought to save your life. It's like just total mental chaos. 
And it was wild that day. And we were just, the worst part, honestly, was listening to the police radios and hearing people die on the radio. That is something I will take with me forever and was the serious worst thing I have ever heard. And then, you know, it was over. I was able to get out of the Capitol. I was escorted out by police. And by the time I was able to get out, we were coming up some stairs and reinforcement law enforcement had come. So we were going up the stairs and we had to kind of hold in the stairway so that they could pass us. I think it must have been 600 police. I think I was standing there for 30 minutes just watching DEA, Border Patrol, like all of these people, reinforcements come in to get everyone out of the building. And I thought, oh my God, like this is the cavalry. I've yeah, the cavalry been, has come. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have never really been that excited to see cops in my life. But I was like, I am so glad you are here right now. Thank you very much. And then I was able to get out. I went to another one of our offices that's off campus and I did some more work for the remainder of the evening. And then I went home. And it just kind of was like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Like, that was crazy. And I I couldn't even, it took me like a year to process it. Right. And we're going to go into that. But I want to pause at a lesson that we can take away from your experience. And that is the lesson that your grandmother imparted to your father, which eventually got imparted to you, which is that you've got to take it one step at a time. And in her particular case, she was saying, take it one breath at a time. We may never be, and I hope I'm not, ever faced with the life or death situation that I have to work through, but we do deal with pressures and stresses and things that we just think are insurmountable. And the lesson that you've imparted here is that you just have to take it one piece at a time, bit by bit. And you can come out to the other side. And it goes back to your point of there was no way to get around this. You were going to have to go through it. You were prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice if you had to. And thankfully you didn't. And I really didn't want to. I was not in the mood to die. I mean, (laughs) I love the Senate. It's an amazing organization. And by golly, this week especially, they're looking real good in comparison to the House. <laughs> but I did not want to put my life on the line for anyone that day. I just wanted to go to work, right? And so, yeah, but taking it a step at a time was the only way I could get through it. Mm. So let's talk about that it took a year for you to process. You shared with me that you have PTSD from this experience. and yeah, probably, yeah. And you did something called... EMDR therapy to start working through it. And the reason I'm asking you to share this, Rachel, is because we do go through traumatic experiences and some go through things that are more traumatic than others. And it goes back to that piece of the willingness to share your story and to talk through what's happened because maybe one other woman won't feel alone if she's grappling with trauma and stress that she's been through. So I appreciate that you're willing to open up and share about this. So let's talk about what it looked like to come out of the other side. So I think first was I was just so angry at literally everyone. I was angry at people who reached out to me and I was angry at people who didn't reach out to me. I was angry when people brought it up and I was furious if it wasn't all we were talking about 24-7. And I was like, okay, well, I feel crazy right now. I don't know why I'm reacting like this and I'm mad at everyone. I probably should go to therapy. And so I did. And the Senate Sergeant at Arms offers for the entire Senate body the employee assistance. And so they have therapists and counselors at the Senate at all times, which is awesome. It's so amazing. I'm so glad that I had that resource. And so I also saw an outside counselor, but I did EMDR, which is I, golly, I am so bad at remembering this. I think it's I mobilization, desensitization and reprogramming. That's probably not at all what it stands for, but it's EMDR. 
And essentially, our minds are little wax records, and our thoughts just kind of move in the grooves of those records. And whenever we have a memory, it's like we're looking at a picture of a picture. And so every time we remember something, it gets a little, especially if it's a painful memory, it gets a little more painful and a little more distorted. And our little thoughts are going around in those grooves. And EMDR helps introduce new sensations when you're thinking about those things. And it just helps that thought plop into a new groove on the record. And then suddenly you can think back on those experiences and not have that same visceral pain that you do before therapy. So it does this through, you hold these little like eggs that buzz in your hands and your eyes watch a light bar. And as your eyes move to the right with the light, your right hand buzzes, the left, your left hand buzzes. And so you just kind of hold these little buzzers and you, your eye, and it's not like a shock. It's like a buzz. It feels like when you have an electric toothbrush, same thing, but it's introducing visual stimulation and also a new sensation that you're feeling. And for whatever reason that helps your thought move into a new groove. And suddenly you can think back on this experience and say, Hey, this thing happened to me. It was really difficult, but I don't feel the same like tummy aches. When I think about it, I don't feel tension in my chest. I don't get a headache. My hands don't feel weird. It's just like if you were to recall a takeout order, it's like, yep, I got, you know, a burger and fries. Yep. I was in the Capitol on January 6th. It's kind of the same level of, I don't feel physically harmed by these memories anymore. It's just a reality. And trauma is trauma. Like, Anything that happens in our lives that causes our bodies and minds to realize that they are not in control, where we get really scared, I mean, that's real. And people need to, if you don't address it, it's going to keep coming up and rearing its head and making life more difficult, in my experience. And so you did something about it so that you could continue to move on with your life and not experience and re-experience the trauma of the day and what you went through. But that also came with a decision to leave your career. Oh, well, I should say to leave your job with the Senate Sergeant at Arms. And so now you tell me that this has even impacted the way that you think about the future. Prior to January 6th, you had long-term goals, you had long-term plans, you knew where you were headed. And now you really don't look much beyond six months out. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. And it's not something I really realized until recently is that I just can't really visualize having a five-year plan. That isn't a thing that currently makes sense to me and not in a philosophical way of, I don't understand how people could have five-year plans. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I am physically incapable currently of having a five-year plan. It just is something my brain can't do. It can do about six months in the future, tops. And that's really strange. I think it's weird. My therapist says it's fine. And it's just something that I'm currently not engaging in five-year plans because I simply can't. My uh, supervisor, my boss... I have a really amazing boss at the Aspen Institute. And she asked me, so what are some things you want to be doing in the future? And I told her, I said, I'm not sure. After January 6th, I really can't do long-term future planning for myself. And she's like, okay, well, if that changes, let me know. (laughs) So (laughs) she was great about it. But it's just something that I can't do. It's really weird. And I think that that's both good and bad. I would like to be able to think, oh, in 10 years, I'd like to be here. And then I can go back and figure out the steps I need to take to be there. But that's not an option available to me at this current point. And so it makes me a whole lot more present oriented, which is really helpful and something that I probably wasn't before. And that's what I wanted to point out is that you are just thinking, you know, kind of what steps are right in front of you, where you're headed in the next three to six months. And so how are you living your life now? How did January 6th impact you? And how are you living now? I'm still doing all the same things I did before January 6th. I will say that I don't think that that day robbed me of anything in my life that was good, which I personally count as a victory. 
I just enjoy things a little bit more now. I take more naps. That is something that's really great. After January 6th, a few months afterwards, you know, we're all stressed. We are all terrified. I got mono and that knocked me out for about eight months. I was so tired. I just, I couldn't even walk a mile and I normally walk three to five miles a day. So that was a huge hindrance. And so I want to be clear that I did not leave the sergeant at arms because of January 6th. And I didn't really leave the sergeant at arms because of any, because of, I didn't like working there or I didn't like my coworkers. That was the coolest job I've ever had. I love my coworkers. I still talk to them almost every day, but I just needed a breather and I needed to slow down and relax a little. And it, some people may think it's a little goofy to go to a huge nonprofit and do risk and count that as a sabbatical, but it really has been such a blessing in my life to just get like to take a beat and relax a little bit more and have more flexibility to do the things that I really like. So things including I've really gotten into reupholstering furniture and I am getting quite good at it. Um, Oh, I love it. I love it. I also am in a writing group with Christina Berger, who's our mutual friend. And I would like to proclaim that I am the slowest novel writer in the history of time. And so I'm working on a novel that I've been working on since the really since the beginning of COVID. And it's not going quick, but it is something that I like to plug away at. And I like to hang out with friends and cook. And do you moonlight as a comedian on the side, Rachel? Because you're very clever. No, but many people have told me that I should, but I don't know if they're just humoring me. And also, I don't know if DC is where I want to cut my comedy teeth. I feel like people are pretty scathing here. (laughs) It's always an option if my day job doesn't work out. And so I have really gotten to prioritize rest, which I think has been a benefit of not of this like lack of long term planning and has really just made going to work a lot easier because I'm rested. And I feel like when I'm away from work, I'm really taking a break and I'm away from work. And then that makes work more enjoyable. What do you want young women to know about building a career and thinking in terms of taking risks in their career, especially knowing what you know now, where you are at this stage? I think that... Everyone should feel the opportunity to make a mistake. It could be that you take this cool job and you do not like it. Well, guess what, my friend? You can get another job. And you may go to law school and hate it or get your MBA and not want to. And, you know, we have all of these opportunities that are available to us as women. And so I think we should have the opportunity to kind of like splash around and be messy and kind of just get to figure out what it is we want to do. Because 22-year-old me, fresh out of master's at Texas A&M, I wanted to work for a nonprofit. I wanted to be on the ground doing something. I wanted to, like, I had all these dreams. In actuality, I don't think those dreams would have actually fit my skill set. And I never would have found that out if I didn't have this weird meandering career to where I am now. What I'm doing now, I'm so much better at. And did my master's help with that? Eh, Not really. I really liked getting a master's degree and I think school is so much fun. But do I use my master's degree? I don't know. Not really, sort of, a little bit, kind of. But that's okay. It was still worth it because it gave me the confidence and the connections possible to move forward in my career. So I think for younger women, especially, there's this big pressure, especially coming out of school, that you need to find your dream job and you just are immediately going to be good at it. And I think we say things like girl boss and there's an empowerment aspect to that, but there's also a lot of pressure to be perfect at it immediately. And that's just not going to happen. I think your dream job should be the last job you have before you retire. I think when it comes to a new job, I really think it takes me close to a year to feel like I've got my footing 
when I start a new job. And I am good at handling situations that are unknowns. And still, it takes me a while to get a lay of the land and to figure out how I fit in and to figure out the culture and like what the humor is and how everyone works together and that kind of stuff. That takes a long time. And so the pressure of I have to get it right the first time. I have to be perfect at it. I have to find my dream job. I have to commit to a career track. And this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. That's a lie. Throw it out the window, right? It's It's a lie. It's a lie. And we've bought into this lie and it adds more pressure. And I mean, women have enough pressure. Good Lord. Especially in this economy. I'm sorry. My life is precious. I cannot give my attention to lies that do not serve me. And I have bought into that lie before and it did not serve me. And I got my heart broken because I didn't get a dumb promotion at a consulting firm. And we cannot let consulting firms break our spirit. And we can't let a whole bunch of things break our spirit. That's ridiculous. And so I think to younger women, I would just say, experiment, figure it out, figure out what you like in your job, figure out who you like to work for, you know, figure out your management style that will serve you more long term than getting your dream job right out of college. I love that you said experiment. It's fierce lab. The whole reason that it's lab is all about experimentation, trying things new. You go to a lab to experiment. You go there to intentionally fail. And if women could get better at seeing that I'm going to try something and possibly fail, and the failure is not failure, the failure is an opportunity to learn, build again, and move forward. We're doing something this year called The Lab, where we are inviting women to join us for one hour virtually, where we workshop, we experiment, we work through all the questions, the concerns, the the things that we're thinking, our goals, whatever it may be, those pursuits that make us who we are make us better. Come to the lab for one hour and let's work through those things. Let's experiment and connect with other women who've been there, done that, and want to share their experiences. Women like Rachel who have lived and learned and are coming out the other side to tell you about it. That's what the lab is about. And that is what the impetus and of Fierce Lab was. And that is what we're continuing to do is serve women in that way and say, it's okay to try out all these things and not be perfect. I love that. And that was one of my biggest takeaways from going to Fierce Lab Live in October and sitting in those sessions and also being on a panel, which was so fascinating. I truly had a moment where I looked around and thought, well, I mean, I'm sitting next to the CEO for Aaron Condren and the SVP for Kendra Scott. And you know, I'm here too. Oops, I'm just going to make the most of it. Let's have fun. Let's experiment. Let's, Let's figure it out. That was such an honor. And I felt like I, I mean, they meant to put me here, so I will be here. (laughs) And I think a lot of times women feel out of their depths and you're there. So you might as well be there. Right. And even if it is an oversight, make the most of it by golly. And so it was uh, not an oversight. Let me be clear. It was was highly intentional, Rachel. It was such a rewarding experience, but also listening to the other panelists talk about mistakes and learnings and the things they were satisfied with in their career and the dissatisfactions and just kind of how they navigate all of that was so cool and so valuable. And so I think with stuff like Fierce Lab, it is really great for women to come and hear. And I just think, man, if something like this had existed when I was just fresh out of school... This would have been so valuable to me. And this is why we created Fierce Lab, to be able to support millennial and Gen Z women on their path forward. And that's why we talk about career development, financial intelligence, mental health. I'm so glad that you shared your point of view of of how you have dealt with these elements that have caused trauma into your life. And and then risk-taking, which we spent a lot of this time talking about. Those are our four key pillars. And it's all to let women know you're not alone. And it's our gift back to the next generation. I love that. That's so important. Before I let you go, 
I have to ask you the one question that I ask all guests, and it's what we close with, as you know. I want to know what the word fierce means to you, Rachel. So I think I may accidentally be giving the exact same answer that I gave at Fierce Lab Live, but I stand by it. And I really think it's just being brave for 30 seconds at a time. And whether that is you're in the bottom of the Capitol and your whole life is getting turned upside down, or more likely it's having a tough conversation with a boss where you ask for money. You just have to do it for 30 seconds and then you can do it for 30 more seconds. And then suddenly you've had an hour long meeting and you come out and either you're successful or the worst that they say is no. So I think just being brave for 30 seconds to get to yes or no. I love that. This has been a great conversation. I'm so grateful to you that you joined me today to talk one-on-one, to share your experiences building your career, to share your experience of being in the Capitol on January 6th, and to share with us what the future looks like for you and how women can take your advice and guidance and apply it to their own life. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for being here. Oh, Tara, thank you so much for having me. And next time I'm in Fort Worth, I would love to come to Fierce Lab. Come see me for sure. Okay. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fierce Lab. If you did, I would appreciate it if you would subscribe and maybe share it with a friend. You can always follow us on Instagram at Fierce Lab.